Whistleblower Report, exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Military Report today. And America, this is a critically important program. I hope all of you will listen closely And we have one of the top experts in the U.S. military here to talk with us about the pandemic response, what it should have been, what it wasn't, and what some of the issues are that affect all of us. And it's critical that you understand this because the Biden administration is already telegraphing another pandemic. And you've heard Bill Gates There will be another pandemic in 2024. Anthony Fauci, there will be another pandemic in 2024. They're already telling us what they're going to do. We've been preparing our audience for the possibility of Marburg as the next pandemic, that they gin up the fear and try to frighten people, use the weapon of fear, push people into the the trap of yet another experimental vaccine. So this is a critically important program. More importantly, our guest today is Colonel Jim Zitlow. And there is no one in my experience more qualified to comment about the pandemic response, about what should have been done, what wasn't done, than Colonel Zitlow, who is now retired from the U.S. military, but I want, at the beginning, I want all of you to really understand the depth of the expertise and the experience managing major crises that Colonel Zetlow brings to this program today and his warnings to America going forward. Now, as always, when we have current or former military service members speaking on our show. And we have Major Mike Gary as my co-host today, who is a chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear weapons expert in the military for 15 years in that certification and that line of work, and 25 years in the military altogether. Whenever I bring on current and former military It is always with the understanding that they are speaking as private citizens, as they have a right to do. They are not representing the Department of Defense, the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the National Guard, and they're not representing the Biden administration. They are speaking as private citizens. As I think many of you will see, I think it's fairly obvious they're not speaking on behalf of the DOD. 
because they are bringing warnings to the American people that the Department of Defense and the Biden administration have knowingly covered up. So with that, I'd like you to understand Colonel Zitlow's background. He graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1987 and was an Air Force pilot flying T-38s and C-5s and then subsequently appointed to the Pentagon as a C-5, C-17 program manager, then followed a special assignment as a congressional liaison for the Secretary of the Air Force. Then in 2001, he began his career at United Airlines as a pilot while simultaneously working as Air Force Congressional Liaison. Then after 9-11, he was on furlough from United Airlines and he was transferred to the newly established Headquarters United States Northern Command. That's HQ US Northcom for the military listeners. And that, of course, is in Colorado Springs. He was full-time military J-8 program manager, later then assigned to the command's standing joint force headquarters, where he would soon be leading the U.S. Global Pandemic Planning Task Force. Remember that assignment. From 2004 to 2008, Colonel Zetlow was assigned to the U.S. NORTHCOM headquarters, and that was the standing joint force headquarters, providing in-house, full-time, trained and equipped joint operations command and control capability deployable anywhere in the United States for homeland defense and support to civil authorities. Again, major responsibility for serious crises across the country. At that time, his duty title was Chief Air and Space Maritime and Lands Plans Branch, supervising 12 Air, Space, Maritime and Land Domain Operation Planners. That team, at a moment's notice, could be deployed to national incidents and events, They worked to bring order out of chaos around the country for many events during that time frame and worked with federal, state, and local agencies as what's described as the glue to keep coherent operations flowing during times when there was chaos and times of rapid dynamic changes. Then in August 2005, many of you will remember that was the date of Hurricane Katrina, He was deployed to Joint Task Force Katrina in Fort Gillum, Georgia, to set up air rescue operations for the incoming Hurricane Katrina. When New Orleans levees broke, which was a horrific time, I remember it well, Colonel Zetlow was the lead Joint Task Force Katrina air operations planner who helped organize the air component via a multi-state phone book that he had built when the internet was down and couldn't be used. He wrote the operations orders to the U.S. Air Component Command to help bed down 339 incoming helicopters and helped organize 
the largest air operations rescue in U.S. history of the New Orleans citizens from rooftops, saving thousands of lives. I don't know how many of you listening were watching that, but I was. I was just absolutely in awe of everything that our military did to rescue people in that horrific, horrific event. And so now we're honored to have the man who led that operation and saved so many lives joining us today. In 2006, Admiral Thad Allen at the FEMA Joint Field Office in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, requested Colonel Zitlow by name to spend the summer working with the New Orleans Coast Guard and with their helicopter operations and the Louisiana State Rescue Agencies to build the first ever headquarters FEMA catastrophic search and rescue plan for a future catastrophic air, land, and maritime rescue anywhere in the United States. Just really incredible. Having led development of this catastrophic search and rescue plan, that established Colonel Zitlow for his next project when his command says, okay, Colonel Zitlow, this is your project for the next 12 months. You're in charge of the DOD Global Pandemic Influenza Plan. And prior to that, the US military had not had such a plan. So in 2007, Colonel Zitlow was the US military's first choice to lead the Secretary of Defense directed 2007 Department of Defense Global Pandemic Influenza Plan. It's rare that we have an opportunity as civilians to hear from such an incredible, highly trained, many years experience, catastrophic operations to manage that, it, that he's coming forward to talk with all of us as civilians about what happened during the COVID-19 disaster for the last three years. And what should we have done? What had been planned that was not done? And then what you may have heard on our whistleblower report last week is that Colonel Remfer pointed out that not only was the plan not implemented, they did the opposite of many of the steps of the plan. And then in 2022, the Biden administration went back in, rewrote the plan and covered up what they had excluded from the earlier carefully worked out plan. The lawlessness in this administration, as I am watching it as a civilian, is truly beyond anything in my lifetime. America, you need to listen to what Colonel Zetlow and Major Mike Gary, both of whom have spent their lives for this country, helping save lives in hazardous situations that were deadly to hundreds of thousands of people. So it's my privilege to have both gentlemen on the program today, Colonel Zetlow. I saw on TV what was done to save those people in New Orleans. And I'm just so grateful for all you did. 
and all that you led and organized to help save those lives. So my sincere thanks and my admiration for your dedication. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Uh, it's uh, thanks for the gracious uh, introduction. Uh, all of these events, uh, it, it takes a team effort and that's really kind of the theme I'm gonna talk about tonight. Uh, is uh, you know everything we do has to be a team effort, and so I was just privileged to be on uh, both uh, the team that uh, helped rescue thousands of people off rooftops during Hurricane after Hurricane Katrina, and uh, it's it's just it's very satisfying when you have a, a, a military team so dedicated to do such a thing, and then going into pandemic planning, we can discuss a little bit of that. But generally, it's teamwork. It wasn't just me. I just happened to be the leader of the group that uh, put that written uh, plan together with an active working group. And I'll go into some of those details uh, here shortly. But thank you again for the introduction. Well, you are you're so welcome. I want our listeners to really understand this incredible background that you have. And yes, absolutely. I totally understand it takes a team. But remember, every team can only be as good as their leader. And it is critical that leadership exercises its responsibility, carries out its duties to the oath to the Constitution. That is what is missing today. And that is why I'm so pleased to have both you and Major Gary, because both of you have done what's right, have been exemplary leaders of teams of people responding to help save lives. Major Gary, your, your comments. Yeah, this is uh, pretty awesome that I get to meet the guy that wrote the original pandemic plan. As the audience knows out there, I've been a part of the uh, weapons of mass destruction um, unit, hazmat unit, which is part of the defense civil sor- uh, civil authorities response uh, to uh, terrorist type threats as it relates to, uh, you know, uh, can biorad type threats. So this is pretty awesome for me. And I just want the audience to know that uh, it was about a month and a half ago, I think I was reading <laughs> Jim's article. And, he, and I was like, this, I was, I was look, looking over at my wife and I said, Jess, this is the guy that wrote the original pandemic response. I said, see, look, it's all about therapeutics. He was all about getting therapeutics to the people that needed it. And I'm like, I was like, this is awesome. Awesome article. I couldn't believe I found it. Now I'm actually talking to the guy. And so this is, this is a pretty awesome connection. And for the audience out there, uh, we heard a lot about Jim's background, but in 06, I was down, uh, 2006, I was down in uh, Camp Shelby, Mississippi, mobbing for Iraq. So in 07, I would move in the uh, surge into Iraq. So just to kind of overlap timelines and see how our, our times lap over each other and cross connections. So this is awesome. Well, let's get to the point about the pandemic plan. And some of your, I think it would be helpful if you explain to our listeners exactly how 
a properly executed pandemic response plan should have been carried out, which is what you had led the plan to be. I'll just give a little background uh, on how a plan comes together and then how it's executed, because I did both of the planning in 2007 and we executed the plan when H1N1 pandemic uh, hit the United States in 2009 when I moved up to the command center as command center director uh, for NORAD US Northcom. Just uh, ironic, you get to actually, most military members are either planners or operators and you never get a chance to do both in this, in this sense. Uh, so just to go back to 2007, let me just explain. Uh, we had a, a group of planners, uh, global military planners, what we call combatant command planners, J-5 military planners from European Command, uh, Pacific Command, Southern Command, Central Command. And of course we represent US Northern Command which covers the United States and North America where we were trying to prevent any sort of a virus or a pandemic virus from coming in. We had planned for the H5N1 uh, influenza strain uh, which uh, turned out later in, two, in 2009 to be the H1N1. So, you know, you don't necessarily get the, the uh, exact strain of a virus uh, that you plan on. So you have to be flexible. So we brought all of the, the uh, individuals together. Uh, about every other month, we flew them in to where U.S. Northern Command is uh, in uh, Colorado Springs. In preparation for that, we were given guidance from the, uh, the three-letter uh, agencies, you know, the federal agencies in uh, Washington, D.C., the Secretary of Defense, basically, uh, Jim, you and your team need to keep the military operating as uh, fully functionally as possible uh, throughout the multiple phases of a pandemic. And uh, that was generally our, our information. We also had uh, the 2005 and 2006 guidance from the White House which was the uh, national strategy for pandemic influenza. There was a 17 page guidance from the George W. Bush 43 administration. And then we had the 233 page uh, implementation plan, uh, which uh, just for most uh, listeners would include, uh, you know, a large number of therapeutics and a smaller, much smaller number of uh, vaccinations in preparation for that. Uh, that included uh, an expectation if a uh, pa pandemic influenza came aboard uh, that uh, we would have about 25% of the people get ill. Uh, we would have about 75 million doses of therapeutics or antivirals, uh, one of which was uh, Tamiflu at the time, and there were others uh, on the shelf available, and then 20 million uh, potential vaccines uh, if and when they were developed, and that would be through the normal testing, safety, and the FDA process. Our team uh, came together, like I said, multiple times to make sure they were ready to plan. We made sure they read the, uh, the uh, basically the, the great influenza book from the tw uh, 1918 pandemic. We uh, reviewed a bunch of uh, previous pandemics and information uh, for the team to get them all up to speed. So we're on the same sheet of music. And then we took the initial guidance and we uh, sat down through multiple work groups. I was at the front of the, the, the uh, meeting uh, room, uh, Mike, 
with all the plan, uh, planners. And then we had doctors and nurses with those specialties in a support role, uh, not telling us what to do, but basically guiding us in, our, uh, in, in the medical specifics, which again, I cannot get into the details uh, due to classification, but uh, we were getting uh, extremely good uh, medical uh, advice on how to uh, implement you know, the tactics and everything else we're gonna do. We did reference the uh, World Health Organization uh, in, our, uh, in their multiple phases of a pandemic. But again, it was uh, our own developed phases and how we as a US military and our sovereignty were going to execute the plan uh, to keep uh, the US military operating. We had several disagreements and, uh, uh, you know, as we were, uh, you know, we all are very, uh, you know, forward looking and, uh, you know, really trying to work together to get a solution. Uh, so there were different dynamics in the room. You know, people were throwing out uh, great ideas and some not so good, but we, uh, I was able to form some sort of a consensus uh, so that when we got to mid plan review about six months in, we've got, uh, we got positive comments from the Secretary of Defense. And at the end of the uh, 2007, when we delivered the 400 plus page final DOD global pandemic influenza plan, the Secretary of Defense uh, gave all of us on the team a laudatory, well done, well written plan. This is what I wanted. It met my expectations and we're ready to implement this plan uh, in the 2009, 10 or whenever a pandemic would occur. And again, the, the plan did not just focus on a specific uh, vaccine. It looked at multiple countermeasures, medical countermeasures, antivirals, therapeutics, uh, and vaccines. But vaccines were one of those long-term solutions because it was going to take a minimum of months to potentially years to get vaccines through the, the uh, testing, production, uh, again, as I discussed, uh, the FDA approval process. So we initially relied on therapeutics and antivirals to be able to keep our military operating. So anyway, that is generally uh, uh, the initial background. And I can discuss more about uh, what's happened from 2020 on uh, here as we go along. Well, what I would like to ask you to do is comment. Did the original plan include lockdown, shutting businesses, keeping people quarantined in their homes, shutting down churches, enforced mask mandates with experimental products? Was that part of what you were planning originally? We had planned to keep our military operating. And keeping military operating, you need a, a functional and uh, open society to be able to provide those logistics, supplies, uh, military families, uh, you know, live in our, our community, civilian communities. So they're interacting with, uh, you know, the, the public and businesses downtown. Uh, it was, it was uh, quite a surprise to me as an original military pandemic planner from 2007. We were locking down multiple businesses, selectively certain businesses were deemed essential and others were not, we were, you know, keeping, uh, the, you know, the kids home and then 
you know, there was more of a burden on uh, not only our civilian population, but our military members with, you know, the school kids being at home. And so, you know, that just seemed to put more of a burden on our, uh, our military members. Uh, so it just, it was quite opposite of what, uh, what we looked at. It was the whole 2020 and beyond here has been much more restrictive uh, number of public health orders uh, you know, in the state I live in, there were over 500 public health orders from the governor himself over a span of uh, 18 months. Just incredible uh, the amount of impact on the public society and the slowdown, which ultimately likely impacted, you know, military operations and military readiness around the globe. I don't think there's any question, but what that's a very profoundly important statement because supply chains were interrupted. There were all kinds of shortages of critical supplies and medicines. And they suppressed early treatment with antivirals, which has never been part of our approach to treating viral illnesses medically in the civilian community or in the military. I mean, for example, you remember when our troops were deployed to Vietnam, they were put on prophylactic hydroxychloroquine to reduce the risk of getting sick with malaria. Well, prophylactic hydroxychloroquine was being used in India as early as March, 2020. Mm -hmm. I personally went to the website for the government of India and their public health government published document, they were recommending 400 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine once a week for all healthcare workers and for high-risk people with comorbidities. That was March 2020, the same time as a physician, working as a physician in the United States, I was being prevented from prescribing hydroxychloroquine once a week for my patient's prophylaxis here when it's an FDA approved medicine for the last 65 years. So that just shows you the dichotomy between South Korea, India, China was using hydroxychloroquine after the virus broke out and China had sent hundreds of millions of doses of hydroxychloroquine from their pharmaceutical manufacturers to Turkey and Iran in December, 2019 and early into 2020. So it is absolutely unconscionable that the earlier pandemic plan from 2007 was contradicted in what they did in 2020, but they, they actually went further than that and persecuted doctors trying to practice sound medicine in both the military and the civilians. So let's talk more about the failures in 2020 when we come back after the break, but because I really want to get more input from you on that. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report military segment, talking about the disastrous execution, particularly under this last administration with Biden, that has contradicted all of the sound medical and operational principles that were put into place in the original global 
post-pandemic influenza strategic plan that Colonel Zitlow and the military team of planners developed in 2007. We'll be right back after the break. Check out our website at www.truthforhealth.org for all of our resources, not only on COVID, which seems to be winding down, at least they've stopped ginning up the fear about it. And now they're starting to talk about the next one and talking about Marburg. We have lots of information in our fact sheets to help you with that too. So don't give in to the fear. Go to truthforhealth.org. We'll be right back after the break. The family of Juliana Parker would sincerely like to thank the Truth for Health Foundation. Without their help and support, we never could have gotten our mother out of the hospital and into our home so that we could be with her for the last week of her life. They gave us the strength, the courage, the knowledge, the list of things that we needed to do in order to prepare for that. And they were there at a critical moment when it came to moving her out. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report with a very provocative and powerful military segment with Colonel James Zitlow, the lead planner for the 2007, led the team to develop the 2007 Global Pandemic Influenza Strategic Plan for the U.S. military and talking about what the plan was and what wasn't done in 2020 when COVID hit. And with me also is my co-host, Major Mike Gary, weapons of mass destruction, military expert. And he is now with us as a consultant and working with us on the whistleblower reports. So Major Gary, you had some questions for Colonel Zitlow. Yeah, what I wanted to point out for the listeners is uh, Jim said something that was really key. Uh, when he was putting together his team to design this planning, uh, that the medical staff had a voice. They didn't run it. And for the audience out there, I just want to explain, I can speak from the National Guard's disaster response side of things. Um, The the Guard has a Homeland Response Force, which is a brigade size element, and then it's got two other levels below it. And I I work for um, the two lower levels. Uh, in the lowest being the hazmat response team. Okay, in in those teams, they're broke out into sections. You have a command staff, you have operations staff, a medical uh, section, and then other specialized sections. But my point is here is that there's a medical section and there's actually decision makers above them. So they're advisors, or like Jim said, they guide the situation. They don't take it over, Okay. So I want to point that out for the audience. That's not what we experienced the last three years. The medical people ran everything and they ran it into the ground is what we learned. And that's not to run down everybody that's in the medical profession or field. That's just to point out who was in, who was in those medical positions and they were put, put in positions of authority. And that's what we've experienced the last three years. Well, not- you're talking about medical people like Anthony Fauci who has an MD degree, but hasn't practiced clinical medicine in probably 40 years and also mismanaged the AIDS epidemic because I was in my beginning of my medical career and he was withholding treatment for the pneumonia 
pneumocystis pneumonia that was killing the AIDS patients, he was withholding and blocking treatment with antibiotics for that at that time. That was in the 1980s. Now, another thing I'd like to point out to the audience, I haven't mentioned it on any of these shows yet, but with the therapeutics, um, you know, and when they started to pull, uh, push back at hydroxychloroquine early on, I happened to walk into my local tractor supply. This is April of 2020. Okay. And I walked into my tractor supply and I happened to look on uh, one of the animal sections where they would sell demormer products because I have animals and I do do that. In ivermectin, there was a big note that it wasn't for human consumption. They had notes up in April of 2020. I looked at my wife and I said, that's another cure. And I started to realize about then I was cementing in my mind that this was about taking rights away as opposed to actually trying to solve the problem. So you're exactly right. It was April 2020. I was in contact. We, We had a network of doctors and I was in contact with doctors in Brazil. And it was in Brazil that they first found that ivermectin was effective against COVID-19, and we started promoting it in the U.S., but the pharmacists were blocking it. CVS had a corporate policy blocking physicians prescribing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19, and in fact, the pharmacist, one in Colorado, threatened me with reporting me to the medical board for trying to prescribe it. Yeah. And so listening to uh, doctors like you, Dr. Lee, that's where I started. It was all kind of converging in my mind that this was about taking away rights. Now, Jim had also mentioned one of the standby therapeutics is Tamiflu. So right about that time, I was starting to find alternatives to things. And I found, you know, the active ingredient in Tamiflu is shikimic acid which is in the star anise, which is a common, uh, you know, spice or uh, food product that you can use. So I started implementing that into my morning tea routine. <laughs> so, and I would, I would share this information with people if they would like to hear it. But Very anyway. interesting. Well, Colonel Zetlow, back to your commentary on what wasn't done that should have been done in 2020. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Just to add many more notes, we could go on for hours here, but uh, some of the big issues were, uh, you know, the National Response Plan, which, uh, you know, Department of Homeland Security was supposed to be handling the non-medical response to a major pandemic uh, was almost uh, invisible. There were supposed to be specific spokespeople at every single level, clearly speaking to the public about what was happening, but yeah. what uh, was not happening was there was not much uh, discussion there. It was all handled from the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, the medical uh, professionals from Dr. Fauci on down. And, uh, you know, there was, there was, you don't need to wear a mask. Then all of a sudden we're wearing cloth masks and and paper masks, and then some talk about N95 masks, which have only about 10, 11%, if I recall, uh, effectiveness against anything. Uh, so there was, you know, the masking, and then then there was, uh, well, the big issue we've been talking about is where were the antivirals? I mean, there were, 
plenty of antivirals we could have accessed that were fully approved with decades of safety uh, experience and, and they were safe. And then all of a sudden, no, you can't use them. And you discussed uh, what was happening with the healthcare professionals not being able to prescribe uh, medicines. It just didn't make sense. I mean, isn't there a right to try law in the United States? Uh, but uh, in the medical field, you, all of that was being blocked. It just, it uh, boggled my mind. And so when they started talking about, you know, these uh, gene-induced injections, uh, they called them vaccines, uh, you know, it was all of a sudden it's going to be a one-size-fits-all. And uh, we talked about the emergency use authorization and the uh, kind of the bait and switch uh, with the, the chimerity, which was approved but never produced. Uh, you know, that was, a, that, was, that was a huge thing that happened. And again, where was the dialogue? When I was running my planning group with very strong uh, military planners and medical people in the support role, we shared all of our opinions uh, without any sort of censorship or, uh, you know, top-down guidance. And we feel we got the plan right and we executed it we feel fairly well uh, in 2009, 2010. So it just boggles my mind that we went from having therapeutics in, from, you know, directed from the president of the United States, uh, George W. Bush 43, to, uh, you know, now this era where all therapeutics and antivirals were suppressed and not approved, uh, you know, and there were some politics involved, I won't discuss that, but generally it just did not uh, go the way that normal pandemics are planned. I mean, I want every, everybody in the public to know that there's planning that goes on in the background. And just like the military doesn't just use the Army or the Air Force to do joint operations, we do all the services using their best skills. Same thing in a pandemic. You use, uh, if, you, if vaccines are approved and safe, over time, you can use those, but you also use a variety of medicines uh, personal protective equipment, you do other uh, types of uh, techniques to try to keep people from transmitting the virus. In the case of uh, those that were injected, it now seems like the initial data is that those had had the COVID injections were actually transmitting the virus more frequently and uh, than those that were unvaccinated that had uh, natural immunity over time through this herd immunity that was there and then disappeared. So that's just some of my initial comments. I have more to share if we have a few more hours. <laughs> well, we have another um, probably 15 minutes. So let's keep going. I think it's important what you're bringing to light and the fact that certainly the powers that were running this operation in particularly by 2021, when the Biden administration came in, there was a lot of data at that point to suggest that the COVID shots did not have adequate safety information and that there were many red flags early on and that there were treatments that were working that were medicines that have been used for decades. So the Biden administration really doubled down on a lot of the maneuvers and mandates and unlawful actions that were the opposite of what the national pandemic influenza pandemic plan had been. And, and it was just, 
it, it just uh, it just boggled my mind that over 84 million working people in corporate America were told, uh, you know, our I think the phrase on September 9th, 2021 from the president was our patience is wearing thin and get out there and get your jab. Uh, and every company with over 100 employees was then mandated to get this uh, injection. But the injection was uh, what I understand built for the alpha variant, which was, you know, 17, 18 months earlier that had already gone completely through the entire population had had been exposed to it and either had immunity or or whatever happened you know so it was just ironic medically or... you're right medically you're exactly right the virus viruses mutate all the time as we know and by the time they mandated the experimental covid shot it was obsolete not only was it deadly and dangerous which they lied about and they deceived the public that it was FDA approved when it was not, but, but it was obsolete. You're exactly right. And, and, and now we're getting, you know, through the VAERS data and the, the DMED data, I mean, over the last several years, there's been a large spike in injuries and death from uh, these uh, COVID injections. And it's just amazing the there's little to no acknowledgement of all of the real side effects that have happened. And, and almost like there's some suppression of this information. And if you're, if you're a policymaker or a leader, your job is to you know, take accountability of what's happened and try to discuss what's happened there. So why is there not much more crosstalk or inquiry of why uh, there are these injuries and potentially a large number of deaths as a result of these uh, these injections. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, so Jim, when you did the original planning, which you used a military decision-making process, which is, is the best process ever designed to come to a, a good logical decision. Um, so contact tracing. What I always understood contact tracing to be was to find patient zero or to find ground zero. Where did this thing come from, right? But that's not what we experienced. Contact tracing from my corner of the country was used to lock people inside their homes. And, and quite often the, those people would be like, yeah, I talked with a contact tracer and they, they said, oh yeah, count everybody in your household. So the numbers would go up because everybody had it theoretically, right? So I just wanted to ask you, in the original planning, contact tracing, what, what was it supposed to be? Well, as you know, I can't go into the specifics of how that would be uh, planned or executed, but generally, yeah, we did have contact tracing. And remember 2007 was what, the first year the iPhone came out. So we didn't even have uh, smartphones back then you know, with apps to be able to track individuals. So, you know, we use some of the older fashioned methods of, you know, contact tracing and nodal analysis generally. Uh, I can't go into the specifics because of what's in the plan and how we did it. You've uh, obviously, you know, could be able to read uh, how that's been uh, changed with technology over time, but it was critical to see who was ill and who they might have been in contact with. And then uh, to take you know, special precautions 
and those sorts of things. But we did not lock down large portions of the U.S. military. We had to, had to have a military operational in order to defend and protect the country. So we did what we had to do to minimize those exposures, but we did track those uh, using methods I cannot discuss here. So. No, that, that answers it, Jim. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm, I want to go back to what you said a moment ago when you were saying that no one was following up on the reports of the adverse events with the COVID shots. In mm -hmm. fact, Carl Zitlow, it, as a practicing physician, the CDC is actually covering up data. NIH, HHS, DOD, the F FDA, the FAA, all of them are covering up the damage that is occurring. Pilot, airline pilot disability claims are sky high, as you talked about in the show we did last week. Damage to military service members. We have many on our military advisory council that are talking about the devastating damage in the military. Civilian employees, the death and disability claims are skyrocketing in the young, healthy working population. Children are dying suddenly. People are dying suddenly. Anyone with any common sense whatsoever, and granted that's in short supply these days, people don't have much common sense. But the point is, everybody that I talk to knows someone who died or was injured or suddenly had a new cancer or they had a heart attack and didn't die, but they've now had a heart attack and, or a stroke and flare up of autoimmune disorders since they got the shot. It is a deliberate cover-up of the fact that these shots are deadly and dangerous. And, and I've heard, I don't know if this, someone will have to check into this, that is it true on May 1st, the DMED database has been taken down? Is that correct? Does anyone know? Well, it was taken down um, last year when Colonel Long, a, as a federally protected whistleblower, brought the data, the information to Senator Ron Johnson's committee and showed what was in the DMED database within a few days it was taken down, that was, that was 2022 in the spring, as I recall, of the time frame. but it was taken down and then they came back up, it came back online and they said, oh, we had a glitch. Well, the data was changed. We had people that had the data before and the data after it came back up and they, they clearly altered it. And, and, and obviously, you know, there's, there's, that needs to be investigated and see what exactly occurred. But, you know, again, with we've got millions of reports, you know, and, and tens of thousands of deaths uh, reported in VAERS and, you know, and, and a spike in just every condition, uh, you know, there's been a number of, you know, physicians like Dr. McCullough have discussed, uh, you know, spike protein going to every single organ of the body and potentially uh, having an impact on, on health. And again, I'm just speaking as a military planner, not a doctor. So, uh, you know, the bottom line is there's, there's something happening across the globe and there should be some sort of an investigation. I've just heard now 
And this is the Biden administration's talking about an additional $5 billion investment now in, in new uh, vaccine uh, development. Is this like projecting yes. what's coming forward in the future? Is that what's happening? Yes, they have I've already, they've already announced that they are planning to just convert all of the traditional vaccines to the mRNA gene therapy technology platform. That is very alarming. And medically speaking, you're, you're quite right. All conditions across the board have skyrocketed be, when since people have gotten the shots. And there are many medical reasons for that, which, which we've been covering on the vaccine report once a week with some of the top medical and scientific experts. So all of that is very real and it is continuing to be covered up. But even not only is there no investigation, but also we're facing the fact that even in the lawsuits, the courts are not ruling on the point of law that fundamentally all of these mandates were unlawful. They were all experimental products, test kits, masking, and all of the COVID shots. The only thing we've had has been experimental. That is unlawful to order or mandate for civilian or military. Courts are not ruling on that point of law. They are deferring to the executive branch. We have lost the checks and balances of our constitutional republic. Well, and again, this is, goes back to the government's governance issue. I think Colonel Renfer mentioned on the previous program that things were run uh, through uh, the White House uh, through HHS and special advisors in the White House, instead of uh, including, you know, and, and basically siloed or stovepiped through, you know, the departments, but there's no cross uh, uh, coordination. Like when I was in the command center, we had air, land, maritime, cyber, all under one roof, and we cross coordinated. That's how we, we ran operations. You do that in a, in a joint operations uh, a situation, you always have everyone in the room, whether it's physically or not, you're coordinating. And, and a lot of this has all been run straight from the executive branch on down through the uh, executive branch departments. And, and again, where has, where, where was the other branches of, you know, government and, you know, it should be an all, uh, all government effort from the federal level through the state level. I mean, we had different governors doing different things in different states and, and there was, there was like almost no coordination. And, and so here we are at the end of the pandemic or what, what have was really much earlier, much, much earlier, but shouldn't we be looking at lessons learned? So we're prepared for the future, but where's that, uh, that end of the pandemic uh, report on all the things that might've gone okay. And maybe a lot of things that should be improved. I mean, where is that report? I mean, you know, there should certainly be an after action report. We did that after every exercise, you know, in the field or in the command center. You always get together and say, what could we have done better? Where is that report? Where is that after action review? So that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. And uh, there certainly were a number of uh, things that need to be improved as we go into whatever's coming next. You're exactly right. And even I, as a civilian, know that after action reports are common in medicine as well. We call them mortality and morbidity conferences to analyze what went wrong when a patient died and what could we do differently. And it's part of business operation, military operation, medical 
management so that you learn to improve what you're doing. America, these are the common sense principles that are being ignored. And the only conclusion that I can draw when there is willful malfeasance, ignoring sound principles of management, medically, politically, economically, in the field of law as well, is that it is willful destruction of our country and of human life. That is why we are all speaking out to help you learn what you can do to better protect your life, your family, and your freedom. Your closing words in the time we have left, Colonel Zitlow, what would advice would you give people to prepare for the next pandemic? It's simply do your homework, go do your own research, and remember, take care of your own, yourself, your family, and your communities. Be ready. It's not, a mask is not going to save you. An, an injection is not going to save you. There are multiple uh, types of, uh, uh, I guess, prophylactics or medical countermeasures, uh, supplements, things that are out there. And I'll let uh, Dr. Lee comment on the specifics of where you can go for that. But, but have a variety of things at the ready. You know, be ready for uh, what might possibly come in the future for you know future pandemics that may occur. Again, if you're in good health, you exercise, you take care of yourself, uh, you just do the basics, you wash your hands. We used to say 20 seconds to sing happy birthday twice or whatever in that amount of time. You keep yourself uh, you know clean and, and you will, you know you're gonna be you're gonna be healthy and you have some of these supplements and and a good diet and, and a good lifestyle, you get good rest, those basic things. And you and if you've got a good attitude and you've got a healthy outlook, that's also gonna help you as you get ready for the future. So don't rely on a government agency or a business or someone else to tell you what to do. Take your uh, own situation and your own family and work with your community. What can you do as a community to get ready, whether it's your church, your neighborhood, uh, you know, your business, uh, your family, take care of yourselves and have a good, uh, happy uh, outlook. And just that is gonna uh, prevent a lot of things from happening to you. You're exactly right. Beautifully said in summary. I wanna thank Major Gary and Colonel Zitlow for being our guests today and for your wealth of expertise and for your many years of service to America and to saving lives. All of you listening, please go to truthforhealth.org. We have the vaccine injury treatment guide, COVID early treatment guide, which is actually an antiviral illness treatment guide. We also have the Marburg and hemorrhagic fever fact sheet to give you facts, treatment ideas, nutraceuticals, supplements, and strategies you can use to prevent getting infected and getting sick, get educated. As Colonel Zetlow said, we have all the resources to help you do that. We'll be back again tomorrow with another whistleblower report. Listen to us every day on the whistleblowerreports.org at truthforhealth.org and on America Out Loud Talk Radio on CloudHub and Rumble. 
God bless all of you listening. Stand strong, America. We are one nation under God with liberty and justice for all if we defend this nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic.